Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Great. Well, it's an honor to be speaking with you, and I want to introduce you to my guest. This is Matthew Corpman, and um, would you mind just telling us briefly where you are right now? Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm currently at Yale University's Divinity School, finishing up my Master of Arts in Religion. Um, I'm concentrating on Second Temple Judaism and examining the whole gamut of Israel's history and how it kind of ended up affecting early Christianity and um, everything that we now have today. So um, I'm originally a alumni of La Sierra University, where I studied uh, religious studies and archaeology. And um, yeah, my, my journey progresses, hopefully this fall, uh, God willing, I'll be starting on a PhD in New Testament studies. That's great. When did you graduate from La Sierra? I graduated in 2018. Okay. And what's it like uh, studying out there in New Haven? Well, it's much colder. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> much colder. Um, let's just say I'm eternally homesick. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I definitely miss California. Um, so it, it's, it's an interesting experience out here. Uh, Yale is a beautiful school. But like all things, once you get used to it, it, you know, the aesthetic wears off. It looks like Disneyland. But then like when you have to work at Disneyland, Disneyland doesn't quite seem the same. So um, there's definitely a difference between what everything here looked like before I got here. And then once you get in, you're like, oh, yeah, there's actual hard work. There's actual a lot of time and study. So uh, my experience has been very enriching. I've enjoyed the kind of seen a whole different coast, uh, a whole different conglomerate of people, how individuals interact and different, you know, even socioeconomic factors that are so very different that I wouldn't have really understood them without living in it and seeing the difference between where I have lived before. It, it's really an education, um, perhaps on the level even as my trips overseas in some ways, um, since I was raised and kind of just for the most part, my life was spent in Southern California. So that's been my, my whole worldview and whole understanding of the United States. So being able to step outside of that, not only, you know, educationally into a non-Adventist environment, uh, but also just in general to a completely different part of the United States has been fun, uh, interesting, challenging, um, and uh, definitely uh, makes me still homesick <laughs> for Southern yeah. California. Is there a class that you've taken there that kind of stands out? Um, any uh, titles that oh, you can think of? Yeah, definitely. There's been a lot of classes I've taken that stand out. I mean, one of my favorites that I took was a theology course. Um, so one of my electives for uh, with Mark Pine um, on the theology of atonement, and that was that was just very exciting and fun to delve into all the different atonement theories throughout history and how the crucifixion has been variously understood, uh, how it's currently being debated. That was just very fascinating to me because I love Christology personally in my own faith. I love learning about that. So that was a fun class that I did. In terms of like a core class that I've taken that I think 
really sticks out probably the courses that I've taken like apocalyptic apocalyptic literature with um with uh my advisor john collins uh, mm-hmm. that was uh, exciting because i mean particularly because i took a apocalyptic literature class at la sierra with john jones and kendra holoviak oh, yeah. so um and we had used um we had used collins textbook in that class so it was really exciting to then be at yale in Colin's own class on the topic using again, his same textbook, but now with the teacher, you know, that, that kind of experience is very fun. If, if that's something that you're really into that topic and, you know, it's great to suddenly have had, you know, experience with it. And now you're there with the person who you were reading stuff like that's very exciting and fun. That's cool. Well, um, those of us who, uh, enjoy thinking about our faith, um, I'm sure are jealous that you get these uh, in-person opportunities to learn from these great scholars. Um, it's definitely a blessing, and I thank God all the time. Yeah. So you grew up down in Southern California. Of course, we want to jump into your book, but as I understand, having read it, um, and I'm curious, is there a way that sort of your biography growing up in Southern California, you talk about evangelical churches, you talk about going to La Sierra in your book, and of course, your own um, journey of faith down there. So if you don't mind kind of weaving a little bit about how you grew up um, and and um, and then how you got the ideas for the argument that you make in your book, Saying No to God. Sure. And, and you're right. Like there's, as if, as with everything in life, you know, there's a journey and there's stepping blocks that build on one another. And so eventually you get somewhere and I've definitely looked back in my past and noticed how those, you know, steps led up to where I ended up. Um, You know, particularly I grew up as an Adventist um, quite, I'd say that my upbringing was very heavily influenced from conservative Adventism. Um, Pretty much my whole Adventist education was uh, televangelist uh, Kenneth Cox, Mark Finley, Sean Boonstra, Doug Batchelor. Um, that was my childhood growing up that through right, the end. That right there was like a Mount Rushmore of uh, <laughs> Adventist <laughs> evangelists. That was great. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, I I just constantly uh, would hear that. And honestly, as a kid, Doug Batchelor, I would have told you, was like, you know, an icon to me. as like, oh, yeah, what a preacher. And I would have told you, I mean, well, I was. Um, at 12 years old, I was baptized by Mark Finley when he did a revelation seminar in San Diego. Um, uh, I have unfortunately not gotten to meet him again since that time, but, um, but yeah, that was, I was one of, I think, I would think I was the only one that, uh, cause I had really requested it. it was so important to me at 12, that he'd be <laughs> the one to, to do it. Um, but uh, so I, I was really in the thick of like what many, you know, Adventists would call like, you know, the, the quote unquote historic Adventism or the quote unquote traditional or the quote unquote super fundamentalist. I really, really was head over heels into it. So if you had asked me at 13 years old, like, um, you know, is Revelation a hard book to study? I would have said, nah, it's easy, easy, <laughs> you know, Doug Batson showed me, <laughs> but watch the series he does every year. Um, so I was sold. I was really into it. And then, you know, something funny kind of happens with that. Uh, when you become a teenager and you've grown up all this time hearing that you've got the truth, you've got the truth. Well, you know, you, you, it, it does something to you. You stop getting excited about it all. 
because once you've kind of memorized it and it becomes like a set pattern, basic instructions before leaving Earth, B-I-B-L-E, um, yeah, the Bible just starts to become less interesting. Yeah. So I became kind of, uh, I didn't lose, it's not like my beliefs changed, I just lost passion for it. So it's like I, w- I would repeat everything you ever wanted to hear and say it, but it wasn't particularly interesting to me to want to look in the Bible and see anything else. I wasn't very fascinated or passionate about, you know, what was in numbers because, well, it wasn't basic instruction. So whatever I'm missing in there, you know, it's okay. <laughs> it wasn't part of the, the acronym. So um, what that ended up leading to was really um, this monumental kind of point in which um, at the age of 18, um, I was graduating high school. Um, I was in Griggs doing homeschooling and I found uh, a copy of uh, Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus, oh, yeah. who changed the Bible and why. And it was my first time ever hearing that there was such a thing as a Bible scholar that was not a televangelist. Up until that point, I was pretty sure that teachers are those who couldn't cut it out as evangelists, and evangelists are Bible scholars. <laughs> <laughs> so Ehrman just shattered that whole that whole paradigm. And suddenly, you know, I realized, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> These are two different worlds, and, unfortunately. And uh, there's a whole history. Now, it's funny. For a lot of people, Ehrman's book, which was about textual criticism and discovering, you know, how the Bible was copied and humans who would change things and stuff, like, for a lot of evangelically oriented people who buy into inerrancy, that was like a, a terrifying book for them. For me, it was the opposite. It was exciting. That book rejuvenated my whole faith because for the first moment, I was able to actually look at the Bible as something I played a role in it as a human. Like just at the very basic level of copying it and putting manuscripts to get right. That was already like, oh my goodness, there's a human part of this where you, you don't just get it fed to you you're part of the feeding process. Like that was exciting. Uh, but then as I started to like, just delve further into scholarship, um, I kind of just took one main principle in my head that I think helped me, uh, where other people kind of tended to get upset or kind of get derailed from this. And that is, I told myself, look, there's no reason in getting upset the way the Holy Spirit might be working with inspiration is not the way that I thought it did, right? It's like, well, if these things scholarship is showing are the truth or whatever, um, well, the Holy Spirit, I believe, is working in the Bible. So however it's actually working is what I want to know. Because I can I can be upset about it or I can protest about it. It's not going to really matter because it, it already did what it did. So all I need to know is what's going on and try to figure that out. So I was very much open-minded, while at the same time very much, um, and still am, very much committed to what some of my more liberal friends would tell me is kind of a conservative hermeneutic. Like, I actually think the, the Bible is inspired. I do think that, uh, that things in it really do matter and are authoritative. At the same time, I don't think that it's, it's the way that uh, I had been raised on it. Um, and I think that as Adventists, our history is kind of like that. The more I studied it, you know, our, our Adventist pioneers, they didn't fit neatly into the inerrant, the evangelical fundamentalist mindset, and they didn't fit into the liberal Schleimacher, it's all just humanity side of things either. Um, you know, it really, we've always, as a denomination, been in this weird middle ground 
yeah. between the polarized side, whether or not we've lived that way always, but our core, our, our actual foundation is there. And so uh, the more I realized that, the more that I began to be very interested in really understanding what's going on in this book and why is it that we are so divided all the time about it. Um, now, you know, growing up Adventist, uh, when it comes to the doctrine of inerrancy, it's not really a doctrine, right? We don't espouse it. We don't technically teach it. But, you know, it's funny. You can watch Doug Batchelor for years, and he never has to give you a inerrancy doctrine uh, lecture for you to get the firm impression that this is what it means for the Bible to be what it is. Yeah. You know, you can just naively listen to televangelists tell you, and look what God said, and look, right, you will pick up on the idea that this is inerrant. Like, this is this is God's exact words they are being given to you. Um, so, you know, thought inspiration is definitely not something that, you know, is, is something you would get from the way televangelists talk. So growing up, I was kind of given the whole inerrancy experience, like many people in Adventism, but without, like, the experience explicit lectures and theories and everything about it. So yeah, I want to jump in there just because I think that's such an important point and I want to highlight it. Um, Number one, it's a, um, this uh, conversation about hermeneutics is supposed to be what the uh, general conference is addressing. It seems to be um, where Ted Wilson wants to take arguments from um, women's ordination to the, you know, and we'll see if if anything um, gets accomplished out of that. I know that the Society of um, the Advent Society of uh, Religious uh, Scholars is addressing this, has addressed it, and ATS, the Adventist Theological Society, has been addressing it. But it's something I can think of Sabbath school lessons where they try to help folks understand this idea. But I think it really, you know, you're talking about how. Um, evangelists don't really have to say anything about it. People just come with this um, uh, inerrancy idea kind of embedded in them, longtime Adventists or recent converts. And I think it's something about kind of the American understanding at a popular level of the Bible. Um, I don't know if it has, and I would say it definitely is connected to 20th century fundamentalism, but it's something kind of deeper that goes back maybe to, uh, you know, the uh, Puritans or something. No, I mean, I definitely think that it's, and I would say it is, I mean, Wilson is right. That is the central issue. Um, if you think about like the debates on the, the ordination committee, you know, what they were, where they disagreed, it was really an issue uh, kind of about hermeneutics, how one understands the Bible. Um, And that's a a problematic issue that honestly the church needs to kind of gather together. The, The problem is, and kind of what my book explores without explicitly making it, you know, targeted at say Wilson, President Wilson, is understanding that, um, the Bible itself uh, does not support the ideas that Ted Wilson would think that, that it does. And yeah. I think, like, in particular, um, you know, like Adventists love to say and have been saying, the Bible interprets itself. Right? It's a very vague yeah. phrase, actually. It, it doesn't say what they thought it said when they first came up with it. Um, I think what they meant by it when they said it and the way they treat it is like, oh, yeah, it means that 
if the Bible doesn't make sense here, I'll find the answer elsewhere. Um, and they're thinking of it just like, oh, I'll find the fact that's missing in one part in another part. But the reality is the Bible interprets itself can also mean the Bible gives you and supports a hermeneutic that will guide you in understanding it. And that much larger understanding of what that phrase means is exactly what sort of my book does. Now, you asked, how did I get the idea for this book? Um, first of all, for those, you know, that already might have forgotten if it was said already or hasn't, the book's title is Saying No to God. Yeah, very provocative uh, title. Right, like very provocative. You just hear the title, uh, you think, okay, so this is an atheist book, right? Another Richard Dawkins. Then you get the subtitle, A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. Okay, now it gets confusing. All right, the radical part makes sense, but then the faithful part suddenly now seems like this is Christian again. How is that possible? You know, why? how can you put faithful and saying no to God in the same kind of conceptual worldview? Um, and uh, my answer to that is, I don't. The Bible does. Uh, <laughs> so when I was at La Sierra, I was taking a class on ethics, and um, they were going through some classic dilemmas in the Greek world about how to understand uh, God and morality and how they work together. And while I was listening to these famous debates, I just, I had just recently read a text in the Bible that just did not fit any of the dichotomies that Socrates and others had proposed for understanding how God's relationship to morality worked. And the story that stuck out to me the most was in Exodus uh, the one that I was thinking of was Exodus uh, 32, uh, where Moses is on Mount Sinai. The people down below are creating the golden calf. And that that part is really well known. And then Exodus 32 tells us that God turns to Moses and says, I am so mad at the people. I've decided to screw everything. I'm going to kill every last man, woman, and child. I'm going to murder them all, complete genocide, I'm going to, I regret that I ever saved them. I'm going to break all my promises and I don't give a darn. Moses, leave me alone. I'm about to go do it. Now, at that moment, right, God has declared his intention, his eternal will. His, <laughs> his, he has stated his command. And Moses, as a good, faithful, uh, Ted Wilson, hermeneutically oriented Adventist, pre Adventist, he should be thinking to himself, well, thy will be done. Yeah. It, it, my, my ways are not your ways. Um, I guess you have more wisdom than I do. Uh, you know, it may appear wrong to me, but in your greater wisdom, none of that happens. None of that happens. Moses yeah. turns to God and says, you cannot do this. You will not do this. It is evil. Yeah. <laughs> he says to him, uh, you can't do it, one, because it's evil. Two, because no one will ever trust you again. Uh, and three, because you'll break promises. And God goes ahead and says, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. And then the narrator tells that, and God did not do the evil that he had said he was planning to do. Yeah, he, he functions and, there like a PR agent in a way, because he's like, this is going to look bad, and it's bad politically. <laughs> yeah, and, and the funny thing is, too, of course, there was a trick to this as well. Um, God told Moses, I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to like make you and your family the only 
genetic people who I am going to like make my mission come through. So like, it was like, I'm going to elevate you, not just as a prophet, but make you a new Abraham. Yeah. I'm going to like do all of this for you. So what's so interesting about that is one, um, Moses is acting in such a way that it makes absolutely no sense in terms of the inerrancy debate that we have. So in our current debates that we, we go through, both on the liberal side and the conservative side, it's always about whether or not we have an inerrant text. But what both sides agree on is that they think that God is inerrant. And this is kind of the, the funny aspect of going around in a circle. The liberal believes that if God was to show up and say something, it would be inerrant. They just don't think necessarily that the Bible text they have is inerrant because yeah. of problems in it. Whereas like the conservative does think and then is trying to fix it and make sense of it. The funny thing about this is, right, Moses has in this story the inerrant word of God in front of him. And the inerrant word of God in front of him, he just rejected. And this is like where we realize a the Bible interprets itself model does not match any of the debates we're having and the current position. Because here we have Moses still able to reject the inerrant word of God, and he's right. Now, what's really fascinating about what I mean when, he's, when I say he's right is two things. One, when Moses rejects what God is saying, Moses actually tells God that um, he, he basically says, look, I know your ways, and these aren't them. And this is really a key thing. Moses is not saying, I've got really good human reasoning, and I'm telling you this is bad. He's saying that you are not a promise breaker. You are not a genocidal uh, (laughs) evil thing. You aren't these things. So show me your real ways. These are not your ways. Now then, two chapters later, you get uh, in chapter 34, at the end of their big tussle, you end up having God say, all right, prepare yourself, Moses. I'm going to show you my ways. And then God gives this huge speech about how he's ever loving, ever forgiving, always merciful, slow to anger. It's like everything that Moses <laughs> said he was and everything we did not see in God in chapter 32. Yeah. And that's fascinating because it, it, everything Moses said God was when he was rejecting how God was being at that moment ends up being what God says he always has been. So God ends up confirming to Moses that his beliefs about God were better and more right than the image of God he was facing and looking at and who he was hearing in that moment. Now, in the midst of their whole debate between each other, Exodus 33 tells us that this is how uh, Moses and uh, God uh, exhibited friendship, that this conversation, this debate is what divine friendship looks like. Mm -hmm. And so again, when you're hearing this, it's just so confusing. What in the world is this kind of a friendship? What, what kind of a hermeneutic even in terms of interaction with God is this between humans and the divine? And so of course, in good Adventist fashion, I turned to Ellen White, who surprisingly has something uh, really great and radical to say about this which is that she argues in two places, and I cover that in the book, that basically God was testing uh, Moses. He was testing Moses to see if he was selfish. Had Moses, she said, you know, gone ahead and said, thy will be done, I trust you, 
he would have forfeited everything. He would have lost everything. Had Moses gone ahead and agreed to what God proposed, he would have basically been given to the devil. Not that those are her words, but like essentially he would have ended up on Satan's side. Yeah. What God was testing was whether or not, she says, Moses was unselfish so that he could pay less attention to his own potential uh, benefit, pay attention to the people that God had tasked him to defend and help, and also, whether or not Moses understood who God was, that here God suddenly appears like a pagan evil deity, and does Moses understand that Yahweh is not that kind of a God? What will Moses do in this interaction? It's a test. Now, this is also what Martin Luther and John Calvin understood the story to be, that this was, again, a test in which Moses was basically required to reject God or else be rejected by God. Now, this is just a fascinating story, and it's one, one of a number of stories throughout the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament with Jesus that illustrate the same idea again and again, that God puts us into situations where we're tested as to whether or not we will recognize a bad image of God and reject it. I want to jump and in what there, is so, I want to yeah, jump in there just in, to highlight that, because you do a great job of... Um, going into these stories, including talking about uh, Jacob, Job, a uh, really interesting argument about Israel, the mother of Jesus, persistent women. To me, reading it, it was like a a twist on Hebrews 11, where, you know, growing up Adventist, and maybe you heard this too, that um, chapter gets called the kind of hall of faith. And I feel like you do a, a kind of um, alt Hebrews 11 of like a hall, not necessarily of doubt, but of, of um, critical engagement uh, through the Bible. No, I think, I think it, you're right. But at the same time, the twist is that um, in each case, in each story in which somebody protests against God or doesn't just believe what God is saying and then wins in the end. In each case, they, they always make the argument that their protest is rooted in who God is. In each case, although they're disobeying God in the moment, they're doing that disobedience out of obedience for who God they believe truly is. So like at no point is this, is this specifically like, oh, I'm skeptical or I don't know about this or I just feel this way. In each case, they're making a real faithful Daniel and, you know, the, the uh, Daniel's friends at the fiery furnace kind of stand, but they're doing it on behalf of God against God. And it's this kind of, this kind of paradox uh, that's best summed up probably by the way Abraham says it in Genesis 18, when he says to God, this is far from you, right? Far be it for this to be from you. Yeah. Uh, this is not who you are, and I will not stand to allow this to be. And it's really important because where does this orient in each of these stories I cover in the book? The main focus is on God's character. Every time the focus is on who God is and the image of God that's being painted. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned, you mentioned Jacob, where in Genesis 32, uh, we have the most radical verse in the Bible in which Jacob has wrestled with this divine entity all night. And, you know, this entity, it says, came to curse him, came to, you know, overcome him. And 
he somehow miraculously manages to stave off this, to keep himself the one who's in control so much that the divine entity has to, you know, basically beg Jacob, please let me go. I can't get loose. And, you know, the sun's rising. Um, And what's amazing is that when Jacob realizes as the sun rises that this is, you know, this is either an angel, as the prophet, you know, Hosea says, or this is God, as Jacob himself states, doesn't matter. Either way, it's it's ambassador for God, so it stands in his place. But in either case, when he sees that it's the divine in front of him, Jacob does not suddenly go, oh, okay, God, all right, your will is to do this to me. No, he fights further he says no and then he says you're going to give me a blessing yeah and what does that what does that really mean at its core it's saying i'm not going to allow you to leave me thinking that you wanted to curse me you are not leaving until i know what you are and that is someone who blesses and so the irony is of course what does god bless him as god says hey guess what um i am going to bless you with a new name israel and what is israel it means those who fight God. And why has he named Jacob those who fight God? Because he says, you defeated God. You have overcome God. Now that is just probably the most shocking Bible text in the whole corpus, if you really think about the weight of that statement. But then the paradox here is that the reason he overcame God is because he refused to accept God as a cursing image. He accepted God only if he would bless him. And what is the blessing? That his children, his spiritual heirs, are going to continue to fight images of God that look like curses in order to find the God who's a blessing. And that kind of an image of the believer's relationship to God is so important Because what these stories basically help us to understand, and which really matters currently, like with, as you brought up, Ted Wilson and and the debates over inerrancy, it points out that according to the Bible's own understanding of itself, God's word is not always uh, trustworthy, as in you just take it at face value, even when uh, it's inerrant. In other words, inerrancy by itself is meaningless if you are actually supposed to be paying attention to the heart of God, the character of God, over and above the words of God. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. It really helps folks realize that um, just going back to the, well, the Bible says it here is actually not the end of an argument. It's actually the beginning because we're engaging with it in a, um, or let to say it this way, an engagement with it is to... Uh, is to actually follow in kind of the heroic tradition of the Bible. The great uh, believers were actually the most um, uh, risking, uh, at risk in their conversation with God. So from yeah. from you, you kind of marshal all these great stories, uh, incredible amount of um, uh, biblical um, exegesis, um, and all the all the textual references that um, a uh, biblical research institute acolyte would uh, love to see, and then you take a little break in your book, um, and then the second half of it, um, and the copy that I have is three hundred and sixty pages. So the second half of that, you actually make some great practical applications 
for what this understanding means in the life of a believer. And by that, I don't just mean their personal life, but also their social life, what sort of um, uh, attitudes they take towards women, folks in the LGBTQIA community, and so on. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll just lay it out. Like the issues that I deal with, uh, I have, so like second half, each chapter is saying no to something. Because after the first half of the book, I've made the argument that God wants us to say no to bad images of him. So then I propose that if we can agree on that principle, here's my attempt to basically uh, take a crack at what I think we need to say no to. Um, Readers are free to disagree, uh, either with how I did it or whether it's right or wrong. But by that point in the second book, uh, and this has proven true for many conservative readers who have gotten that far, Uh, By that second part of the book, suddenly arguments that didn't seem plausible uh, now suddenly make sense in a way that, you know, they just hadn't before. So I have chapters that are like saying no to patriarchy, saying no to homophobia, saying no to divine violence, saying no to hell, saying no to uh, exclusivity of like salvation. Um, And what I try to do in these, these chapters is give completely new arguments for things that people have really heard way too many times. So obviously, if you're a conservative and you've never read anything from from a liberal, then no, everything, no matter what I wrote, was going to be really you know new. But if you're a progressive or a liberal or even a moderate, and you've listened and heard different arguments from the different sides, you know, you might at some point be like, well, I know all the talking points about, you know, LGBTQ in the Bible. Well, I know all the talking points about, et cetera, et cetera. What I really want to do is just like the first half of the book, make sure that everything I said about each issue was going to be a really brand new approach, something that would help, uh, whether or not it was the best argument you ever heard, it was going to be something genuinely contributing to the conversation. So um, I try to deal with, uh, you know, obviously hell is not an issue that for like Adventists is in debate. You know, it's part of our very DNA to reject it. But, uh, at the same time, why are we rejecting it? It's so interesting that as I explore in that chapter, that Ellen White roots the reason why we reject hell, because she says there's no way to believe in Jesus accurately if your image of Jesus looks like he is running hell. Like they, She's just like, it, it will not work, because the image that evangelicals, she says, that they have of God is Satan. God who runs hell for evangelicals is the devil, and the devil is their God. And it's so stark how she puts it. Like, this is the great satanic deception, she says, that they've they've convinced all these people to believe in the devil as God. So she says, there's no way that you can keep that doctrine and think of God accurately. It'll screw you up. And that's important, again, as kind of like with these stories, these ideas of fighting bad images of God, when you come to issues like, you know, homophobia or, you know, women's ordination, as it's been currently being fought over, you have to really start thinking carefully about not the nitty gritty as like a Wilson approach might be or a Doug Batchelor approach. I'm going to look at, is there a text that says this? Well, folks, there it is. It comes much more down to principle, to realizing, wait, wait a minute, this has to match the trajectory of where God is going, right? Ellen White's argument was not that there aren't Bible texts that could be construed as preaching hell. In fact, she states explicitly that 
Jesus did give parables like the rich man and Lazarus, where he knew that many people listening would believe that that was supporting hell. And, and she admits that like Jesus was not against using the popular ideas of their day to support those things. But this is the kind of like the interesting catch 22. We as believers who have the Bible are not allowed to take those verses and then apply them literally. We're not allowed to see how Jesus describes hell <laughs> and then go, Oh, well, then that's the way it is. No, she says. He's describing it much like the people then believed it was, and he's using their beliefs in order to get other points across. So again, it's so interesting that what this hermeneutic that both Ellen White in these cases is supporting and what the Bible stories I cover is supporting is saying you can't separate the questions that you're debating from the trajectory of who God's character is. You can't make these ridiculous arguments like some people do, which says, well, over here it says God hates, and over here we have Jesus and love. So that must mean that God can hate lovingly, (laughs) right? That is a logical contradiction that only inerrancy forces you to, like, or this idea of like, oh, I have to accept whatever it says God says. Suddenly that forces you into this weird situation where you're saying things like there's a square circle. It is not possible You can use the words, but they don't mean anything because it's not even imaginable. And when you realize that, then you have to realize, oh, I have to choose. I don't get to say that God is both hateful and loving. I have to say God is either loving or he's hateful. And whichever trajectory I'm going in, that's going to carry ramifications on down the road for everything else that I say. And that's essentially Ellen White's argument regarding hell that it, it does not go in that trajectory, which everything Christ pointed to. And so as a result, there's no way to even entertain the idea. So getting this kind of an idea, this kind of a hermeneutic in which one focuses on the overall image of God, you're using scripture to interpret scripture, but you're also recognizing that the fundamental controlling hermeneutic for all of this is in fact God's character. And specifically, of course, Um, the revelation that Jesus gives us of that character. But again, like, it's not as if I'm simply saying, and this kind of separates my book as well, I'm not simply saying, oh, well, Jesus answers it all. Just look to Jesus and it'll fix everything. Yes, Jesus is the self-revelation of God. Jesus is who shows us the heart of God. But Jesus is clear In the New Testament, I cover, like, there's these two stories where Jesus does the same thing that Yahweh did with Moses. He is challenging people and and putting them to the test of whether they'll reject him. So in Jesus' earthly life, he shows us that his followers had to be willing to reject things about him in order to be tested. And then Jesus tells his disciples as well that I am not able to tell you everything right now. I'm the comforter. The Holy Spirit is going to be coming to you. He's going to guide you into all truth, and you're going to do greater things than I have. And that kind of an emphasis is kind of to demonstrate that it's not like before Jesus we had, you know, a a non-divine command theory. And then suddenly we got Jesus, and now we got the the words in red. This is what Mm -hmm. answers every question. No, actually, Jesus, just like Yahweh uh, in the Old Testament, is challenging his believers to challenge him and continue moving forward. And in fact, amazingly, that's exactly what we see in the history of Christianity uh, with like Paul, who goes ahead and 
disagrees with what Jesus' advice was in the Gospels on divorce and knows it, admits it, but basically argues that because Jesus' trajectory was towards peace, his argument, although not in alignment with what Jesus said when he was in his context, still matters and people should listen to it. So in the whole history of Christianity, we have always kind of understood this principle if you think about it, like no matter whether you were conservative or whether you were liberal, uh, everybody to some degree says no to God in something. There's, you know, nobody is following everything the Bible says. Like as much as Adventists might think to themselves and say, well, we believe every word that God says, you know, but guess what? Leviticus tells you you should go and murder gay people. Like it said, uh, not gay people, actually, literally, it says men, you know, male homeless, uh, male uh, people who sleep with males is the, the technical designation. But the point is, you should be killing them, according to Israel's laws. That's the death penalty. And yet, if a Christian stood up in a church, or let alone an Adventist, and started saying, we should go do that, somebody might call 911. And, and you know, they wouldn't be amening. They'd be like, hey, there's a dangerous guy here. He's saying crazy stuff. Well, Hello. If you're not going to take the text completely, if you're already saying, well, but Jesus over here says this, so I'll leave that vengeance is, is God's in the future, right? You're already adapting the text because the text clearly tells you one thing, but then because there's another text, you're softening it. Yeah. And so you're already saying no to one aspect of the text because of another text. You're already doing exactly what my book is talking about, except that you're not doing it consciously. You're kind of naively doing it without realizing that you're doing it. And I think that's the danger that I'm hoping for us to avoid as a church, but also for the church as a whole, mainstream Christianity, to realize that this is what the Bible depicts about humans in relationship with the divine, but also to understand that, you know, when we look back at issues like slavery and we see in the Bible how much was used to promote slavery by ministers to realize that the abolitionists were not rooting their arguments in a thus saith the Lord. They were rooting it in a thus is Jesus, thus is God's character. When Ellen White was pushed on the issue, she said, I don't care what arguments, you know, you can bring out, you know, aka from the Bible. Uh, It doesn't matter because God's spirit has shown us this is wrong, right? There's something more important than the text of the Bible for determining our understanding of what we're supposed to do in faith. And that is who God is, who his character is, who Jesus was. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's a really, um, I feel like a, uh, great pairing with, um, Richard Rice's the openness of God and the, the literature out there from Clark Pinnock and others on, um, divine foreknowledge, because you're kind of, you know, to use that language, bringing God down to us and making us aware of how we always operate, which is bringing our own experiences into this uh, divine conversation and and really trying to hash out what um, what w- w- how we are going to act in um, relationship to how we understand God to be. And we bring that into the Bible. It doesn't doesn't always arise straight out of it. But um, kind of wrapping up here, I wanted you to kind of maybe talk to a specifically um, Adventist 
uh, who might be thinking about reading this book and, and, and in your own words, kind of say what you would like someone who's kind of uncomfortable with the current debates, what you would like them to get out of reading your book? Well, I think what I'd, I'd like for anybody in that position to get out if they read the book um, is to recognize that very little of my book is is myself. Uh, one, the ideas that and kind of the interpretation of all these stories as tests is a very old interpretation. It's not only from the Bible, but it's part of the very Reformation and it's very fabric. So this is a very classic idea that the only thing that makes my book unique is that I've given it a book length treatment. Uh, other people have simply treated it in their commentaries on the passage, not necessarily giving a whole book to kind of bring all the stories together. Um, I would hope that they would recognize just how scriptural, just how foundational this idea is to a biblical hermeneutic. And then realizing that, that they can step outside of the kind of, circular reasoning and circular arguments that we've been having on both sides and suddenly see a way to step out of that kind of cyclone and actually find a middle ground in which you can actually talk about the Bible and force each other to find a common ground, a common denominator. And I think, and I really hope that this book, in fact, I really believe that this book has the fundamental capability to change every conversation, not only that Adventists are having, but evangelicals are having. Um, it's just whether or not you agree with like my own specific proposals for how to apply the principle to certain issues in today. Um, the principle itself is what matters most because currently we're talking to each other in a way in which nothing gets accomplished and the argument never ends. But if we look to these stories that we have traditionally ignored because, oh no, they're, they're too complicated. Oh no, they, they throw so much into question. If we pay attention to these hard texts, we're going to discover, I believe, super abundant riches that will help us in terms of understanding God better and also understanding um, how God wishes to communicate with us. What divine friendship looks like, not only for Moses when he was in his his tussle with God, but what it looks like for individual Adventists and Christians who are reading this book and find themselves wrestling with God. Uh, could God have really said what he said in Joshua? Could God really want what it says in Psalms God wants? These questions haunt us and simple answers that say, oh, well, the Lord's will is a mystery. Oh, well, that's just, you know, not making sense to you because you're a human and God is... No, God already understood. The Bible already laid a foundation for uh, faithful people to faithfully engage in protest and engage in wrestling with God to really seek after his character. And the best part about it, it's what Israel's name is all about. The very foundation of Israel is that God's people do not just accept what he says. They fight it because they know what matters most is his character, is his heart. And that leads us straight to Jesus. And that's why it's so important that we grasp this idea. Yeah, thank you very much. I will just add, um, if someone out there has someone in their teens and 20s, this is a perfect book uh, to 
uh, give to an Adventist uh, or anyone who's sort of questioning wrestling with their own faith. Um, it feels fresh. It reads uh, well, and your epigraph game is great. So lots of fun um, uh, quotes in there as well. Thanks. It's been great talking with you, Matthew. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely.